that is unlikely based on everything I've read and everything I've seen and historical evidence. It's unlikely that that's going to last for a long time if there's any kind of a buyer's market there because of the fact of the massive shortage that exists in the inventory of the market here. As a loyal Best Ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Brent Maxwell, how you doing, Brent? Hey, Joe, I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. A little bit about Brent. He's got an interesting approach. He has a passion for the, quote, limping, unquote, sections of Detroit and helps people buy into a piece of the city's recovery. He's based in Detroit, Michigan. His company's website is IPSRealty.com. That's in the show notes. So, Brent, with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? I'd love to. I've been in real estate investing in Detroit for going on 15 years now and started in 2005 with my first duplex and just been running it at full steam ever since. So I lived through the great run-up to the great crash of our generation. What type of investor are you? I like to be a value investor. I do added value purchases. We invest for cash flow, but with long-term upside potential as a secondary criteria. What's your portfolio look like today? Single family residential, small multifamily, small apartment buildings. The only time we deal in anything really commercial is if it's mixed use. For example, we bought a 32-unit building, which four of the units were storefronts. But other than that, it's all at this point in time, residential income property. When I mentioned your bio at the beginning, I said you've got a passion for the limping sections of Detroit and helping people buy into a piece of the city's recovery. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So for limping, we like buildings that are limping. And by that, I mean for the apartment buildings, we like them with some occupancy, ideally with bad management or neglect, but with some people in the building so that the building has functional systems, even if they need to be updated or at the end of their useful life or even functionally obsolete, at least they're operating. And that there's some people in the building typically not paying rent or paying below market, that sort of thing. As far as the areas that we like to invest in, I like what I call the edge of hip, the areas that are on the cusp or the edge of where the hottest areas are, or areas that are just starting to hit that gentrification curve. Let's pretend that you weren't from Detroit and you didn't live in Detroit and you lived in Indianapolis. If you were to invest in Detroit, how would you identify the edge of hip? There's two ways to do that. One is to utilize a local expert like myself that knows the city and lives and breathes the city. The other way to identify those areas would be to look at all the data and go from that. I think that our approach, both of those support each other. So it's not a gut feeling. It's backed by science and math in the markets. What data do you look at? 
sales data. Also, we look at for planning standpoints. So I buy for cash flow. So everything we buy is based on what's it going to cash flow like? What's the ROI going to be when it's rented now? But we have that secondary criteria of what's it going to look like when this area has recovered? And that isn't just current sales data. The current sales data tells us what markets are hot. And you can see that from the streets as well. But from looking at just numbers, you can tell prices are increasing in this area versus other areas that are still flat. But what we look for is the city has 50-year land use maps. They have long-term planning. So the city doesn't determine the market. People buy what they want to buy and the city putting on a map and saying this is what we want to have happen doesn't necessarily make that happen. But if you have the government behind what you're doing, whether it be through tax breaks or added attention to neighborhoods, bringing in NSP dollars or stabilization dollars from the feds, the city of Detroit just created a plan to do 12,000 affordable housing units with $250 million in a fund. That money is going to be targeted at areas that are in our target areas. And part of the reason we picked them is because of things like that. So even if we're not participating at that fund, for example, if they develop the area that we have holdings in, mm-hmm. it's going to help pull ours up. You know, rising tide raises all the boats. And mm-hmm. even if we're not participating in government money, which has its own downside and caveats to making that useful, we still can take advantage of the fact that the government is putting a lot of money into certain areas of town. And other areas of Detroit, large areas of Detroit, are vetted and planned to be farmland. They call it innovative ecological and innovative productive. So farmland or factories or small assemblies, like they're not going to be building axles and doing large manufacturing in the city anymore. It's not something that really makes sense for anywhere in the States based on cost of labor, but we still have plenty of opportunity for manufacturing and other types of industry. So that's what the city's looking at. And you look at say, Detroit, it's, it's 139 square miles. 2.1 million people lived here at one point in time. Now you've got a third of that. Mm-hmm. So you've got a huge quantity of land. I've seen drawings where they, they've taken San Francisco and Boston and put them in the city of Detroit. And there's still a huge amount of city <laughs> left for another city to be put in. <laughs> it's got a lot of land. <laughs> so we don't have enough people living in the city or enough demand to fill that. So I think that the plan to do the, the agricultural and production in the city is where it's headed. And hopefully in our lifetime, we'll see all of Detroit experience the recovery that a small portion of the town has already seen. I have a follow-up question on the population being a third, but I'll get to that in just one second. First, the 50-year land use map. How or who does the best ever listener talk to to obtain that? I'll actually be putting a page coming up soon on the website with all my slide deck of maps on it. So it'll be there, but you can get it. If you just type in a Google search and look at 50-year Detroit land use, the maps or the program should come up where you can see what they have going on. And then they can apply that same approach for... Indianapolis or apparently Indianapolis is on my mind. I don't know why. (laughs) Or other cities like that. Well, the Indy 500 is in a month, right? There it is. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But as far as applying that map to other cities, no. No, 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 no. I'm saying applying that approach, the Google search of Indianapolis 50-year land use map, searching for that and then coming up with Indianapolis. I think this is a Detroit-specific thing, so I don't know if Indianapolis has that. Okay, fair enough. But obviously, you can get all kinds of information about any of the competitive Rust Belt, Snow Belt cities like Indianapolis or Milwaukee or 
Cleveland, what have you. I think the advantage of Detroit over those markets is while they all have and can generate pretty strong ROI numbers and cash flow numbers, the housing stock, if you really compare like the city that comes up a lot is Buffalo, New York. If you look at the housing stock in Buffalo, and no offense to Buffalo, but if you look at the housing stock that's available for low-end, low-income rentals, it's mostly frame and smaller houses. And if you look at the housing stock that's available in Detroit, there's plenty of quarter million dollar replacement value brick houses that you can have fully renovated for 30s, 40s, and $50,000 price points. So that's something that a lot of these other cities don't have available. They just don't have that high-end housing stock that's so affordable. Let's talk about the housing stock, and in particular, the one-third of the population that used to live there now lives there. As a real estate investor, you need residents to pay the rent so that you can at least break even and hopefully make money. So when you look at a city that has a whole bunch of land but not as many people, wouldn't that be the opposite of what you typically want? Well, I think the key there is to not look at the city because I don't invest in Detroit. I invest in certain areas of Detroit. So as I said before, you could fit Boston and Seattle and San Francisco in Detroit and still have land left over. So for the investor, the idea is to find the specific areas that you want to invest in. There are plenty of areas in the city of Detroit that are experiencing strong transitional housing trends, as well as some areas that are experiencing somewhat substantial population growth. So if you break it down in our target areas, the population is either stable or growing, and the demand is increasing, and the demographics of the potential buyers and renters is also changing. Those are the areas in flux that we target. Will you give us maybe a case study of the last deal or a latest deal that you did just so we get an idea of what you're buying? Okay. So there's a neighborhood called Jefferson Chalmers, which is on the east side of Detroit on the river by the border of uh, Gross Point, which is an affluent suburb of Detroit. It borders right on it. Jefferson Chalmers is right on the water, and it's about a 10-minute drive from downtown. It's certainly Uberable, and it's bicyclable. So it's commuter-friendly. It's a nice neighborhood, lots of great houses. And we recently purchased a four-unit at the end of the block on one of the side streets off of Jefferson, which is the main road that runs down along the east side riverfront. And we purchased this property, the four-unit building, right around the corner from the coffee shop next to the new used record store, right by the bike lanes that the city is putting in. So those things are really strong markers for an area that is attractive and attracting millennials and experiencing some recovery and gentrification for sure. Coffee shops and certainly used record stores don't open in neighborhoods that aren't hip. The record store recently opened? Yes. Oh yeah. my. <laughs> okay. Yeah, vinyl, like 12-inch vinyl records, you know? All right. Record store, new record store, whatever. Godspeed you know, to them. There. Yeah, so <laughs> it's been a couple of years now, but it's been there. So we purchased this four unit and it has some capital improvements and CapEx needed and some deferred maintenance. We're putting a roof on it. We purchased it at the end of last summer. We've started to turn the units, and when the people move out, we're turning 450, 500 per unit for these two bedrooms into 750 rents. We're absolutely capitalizing on the change in the demographic of the renters in the area. When looking at your portfolio to date and taking into account the value that's been added through both forced appreciation and just natural appreciation, so regardless of what you do, it just went up. What percent would be allocated towards forced and what percent would be allocated towards 
just natural because you're picking the right edge of hip areas, as you call it. What percent of, can you clarify oh. the question a little bit? Sure. Your properties increase in value. Right. What percent would you allocate towards you having a hand in forcing that appreciation through renovations or whatever else versus you just, it's not luck, but you're finding the right area and it's just naturally increasing regardless of what you do to it? Right. Let me take a shot at answering that. Basically, all of the properties we buy have some built-in equity potential, some ability for forced appreciation, with rare exceptions. We do buy some that are fully stabilized, but being local and able to add that value, it just makes sense to buy properties that are at least a light project, a turn of some kind, or some form of distress that we can take advantage of and add some leverage to our purchasing in that fashion. And then all of them, for sure, are purchased with appreciation potential being a key component. And I'm not talking about a few points a year type of appreciation here. The areas that we buy in, I can give you an example of my primary. I purchased 10 years ago for $23,000 in Indian Village. It's a 4,000 square foot Leonard Wilkie designed auto baron mansion. It was rough and I put a lot of money into it, perhaps close to a hundred total invested, but it's worth four or 500 now. So that type of appreciation, that type of hockey stick curve exists, and it existed in downtown and midtown, Corktown, Indian Village, which I mentioned. That's transferred over to other areas of Detroit, such as University District, and now it's hitting other neighborhoods, like the Jefferson Chalmers we're talking about. Morningside is also near on the east side. Southwest Detroit, outside of the super hip Hubbard Farms and Mexicantown area, there's a lot of opportunity in southwest Detroit. We just bought a duplex down there. And then on the west side, I don't deal much in the west side for geographic reasons, simply because I like all my holdings within my regular travels or ideally within a bicycle ride from my office or my house. But northwest Detroit has a lot of churn and a lot of opportunity for transition there. So we're talking about properties that pre-crash peak, for example, your three-bedroom typical bungalow uh-huh. in Detroit, the thousand square foot three-bedroom bungalow, kind of a common type of home. These houses sold for eighty dollars to $120,000 pre-crash, 2005, 2006. And now you can still purchase them in many neighborhoods, fully renovated, tenant ready in the 30s, 40s, and even low 50s on the higher end, and sometimes even in the 20s, maybe not quite as nice. But basically, you're buying at a quarter to a third, sometimes half of the pre-crash peak values. And these areas, when they hit that sweet spot of around fifty to $60,000 per unit, lenders really start to take attraction to it. And the whole area experiences a dynamic shift from being a primary renter's area to being new homeowners buying, and not just on FHA, but on conventional mortgages, buying new homes in the area. So you've got a big pop where these properties go twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars over a couple of years, and then all of a sudden they jump up to seventy-five, eighty-five, ninety-five. Because when I look at a house that's eighty thousand dollars versus a house that's sixty thousand dollars, the difference in strike point for me is twenty thousand dollars. But for a homeowner who's buying a house that's $60,000 versus an $80,000 house, they're looking at $125 a month in debt service. So mm-hmm. it's, it's easy for them to say, well, we'll just pay 5000 more. Whereas for me, that's hard cash out of pocket. So it doesn't always make sense. Investors can't compete against homeowners and those neighborhoods that are ripe for transition, those are the areas we like to target. Based on how you're talking, it sounds like you also have your own property management company. We do. And we were a public property management company and that we provided services to the world, but we've actually kind of closed our doors on that. And now we're only working with clients that are purchasing through us, with us, or partnering with us. 
So we're a private in-house property management company doing all of our own management. What's a typical partnership structure? We used to do flips. So it was basically an equity split where an investor would put up cash. We would take care of the acquisition of the deal, managing it, doing the whole process, and we would split the upside. Sometimes we would have cash in the investment. Other times it'd just be straight 100% investor capital. What we switched the model to, though, is now we offer a small percentage on an annual basis because we're buying to hold for basically two to five years is the typical target length. And that, of course, depends on factors that are outside of everyone's control, such as if we hit another swoon or if there's a recession for a while, what that does with the market. I look forward to the opportunity to have easier buying for sure because the market's very tight and it's hard to find good deals. But that is unlikely based on everything I've read and everything I've seen and historical evidence. It's unlikely that that's going to last for a long time if there's any kind of a buyer's market there because of the fact of the massive shortage that exists in the inventory of the market here. So we offer a fixed return plus an upside. So it's kind of like a preferred return plus their equity owners in the deal? Exactly. Okay. And we form new LLCs and partnerships, a full operating agreement, and it's, it's done in a, a very clean, professional fashion. k one at the end of the year, the whole nine yards. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate investing advice ever? I don't want to live with regret. And I don't think anybody else does either. Looking back, the deals that really bother me the most are the ones that I passed on for one reason or another that I should have pulled the trigger on. So if you look at the opportunities that happened in, say, Corktown in Detroit, just outside of downtown, those values are through the roof. I'm not going to miss them again, and I don't think anybody else should. The big crash of 2008, 9-15-08, that day came once in our lifetime. It's not going to come again. We're not going to see that level of opportunity, that level of correction. It's a multi-generational event. So we still have the opportunity here in Detroit to take advantage of the opportunity that is here. It's not going to be here forever. So my best advice is if you see something and you want to do something, take a shot. At the time, why didn't you pull the trigger on properties in Corktown? I thought they were overpriced at the time, and I didn't see the massive appreciation that was going to take place. When you say you thought they were massively overpriced at the time, what sales data were you looking at to determine that? Determine whether they're overpriced or not? Mm-hmm. Just in comparing the other neighborhoods of Detroit, the price per square foot, the type of property and how much it was selling for, it comes down to demand and what people will be willing to pay. And in some cases, I'm still just completely baffled. There are brand new townhouses built in Detroit, not far from these neighborhoods I'm talking about on the east side, that are selling for $400 a foot. Now, I don't know about other markets in the country as far as that goes, but $400 a foot for Detroit housing is through the roof. And it's awesome. But if you'd have told me eight years ago that these houses were going to be developed and you're going to have 2,000 square foot townhouses selling for $799,000, I'd have said, no way. That's, that's insane. But yet, if you look at it from a global standpoint and from other market standpoint, it's actually not that expensive to have a nicely developed townhouse 2.5 miles outside of the city center in a stable neighborhood that you can get for under a million. That's a challenge in Chicago for sure. You're not going to get that in Lincoln Park, are you? Well, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. I don't, I don't know Chicago real estate that well, but I'll trust you on that. Um, so when you were at the time, just traveling back in time to when you were thought they were overpriced based on other neighborhoods in Detroit and the price of property, without just 
pretending you're at the roulette wheel and just hoping that it goes up. If the numbers, if the data was saying don't do it, then how do you now make a decision in a similar circumstance to then do it besides just hoping that it does it? Okay, well, then dealing with the Corktown situation, for example, that area completely turned, and that's one of the reasons why those prices have gone up so high. It was a different flavor of neighborhood, and it changed due to the influx of double-income, no-kid people and hipsters and millennial workers and so forth. It became a very popular hip neighborhood. The same thing with the West Villager area, the Island View area I was talking about with the property on 2,000-square-foot townhouses trading for seven ninety nine. That example of the 2,000-square-foot townhouse has been supported by the transition of the Corktown neighborhood. Corktown was an anomaly at the time, but now we've got a historical precedent that suggests that this is something that's going to happen in other areas, and I can see it happening in other areas as we speak. So Island View, which is where that, those townhouses are, really challenging to find any deals there for sure, but they're available. We bought a house on Field Street a little while ago, which is in that neighborhood that's doing very well for us. And that Jefferson Chalmers I mentioned on the east side is another one where the edge of that has a lot of opportunity for us. So we are basing our buys on historical precedent along with in many cases, in more of the bread and butter neighborhoods, we're not looking at that gentrification factor, but just looking at the ability for the neighborhood to catch back up to where it was. We're dealing with the straight recovery there, and it's not a gentrification. So if you've got a neighborhood where properties are trading for $30,000, $40,000 for nice houses, but they were trading for eighty dollars to $100,000, is just a recovery play waiting to happen. And the city and the market are both behind a nice neighborhood with lots of good brick housing stock, including some mixed in frames. Those areas are going to recover. The city wants them to recover. The market's going to want them to recover. The prices are going up. And you see where prices were flat for 12, 13, 14, where they're now starting to curve up and you see values increasing. It's happening. We're in the middle of it, watching it occur. So that's how we know that these opportunities are real and they're happening and we're going to get advantage of that. But like I said before, the caveat to it all is at this moment in time, we still buy based on cash flow and income. So as long as we can make a real-world realized double-digit return on these investment properties, they're buys when they have all those other upside potential attached to them, and we're buying them with the immediate forced appreciation value-add play attached to them. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best-ever lightning round? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best-ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Adam Adams has one of the most active meetup groups in the world. I've personally been to one of his meetups and Adam packed that house with over 80 investors at lunch and another 60 on the waiting list. Find out the exact six things he did to create one of the top meetups on the planet by texting the word meetup to 555-888. Okay, best ever book you've read. Best ever book I've read. Uh, <laughs> how about the one thing? Gary Keller. Best ever way you like to give back? I like to help people who are struggling get back on track, whether it be via taking my time and working with covering alcoholics and addicts or helping struggling families get back on track. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? 313-422-1333 or brent at ipsrealty.com. Well, Brent, thank you so much for being on the show 
A couple takeaways. I got a lot of takeaways, but a couple of them certainly rose to the surface. One is alignment of interest with the city and also looking historically what's happened in certain neighborhoods and seeing if the fundamentals are still there that will continue to drive that growth or bring that growth back. And that's some of the things that you've mentioned with the 50-year land use map. By the way, I Googled a couple cities and I didn't get it. 50-year land use map, so perhaps, obviously, it's with Detroit, but then I'm sure there are other similar things. Perhaps looking at the zoning for the city, there are zoning maps for all the cities and seeing how that's laid out and seeing what the plans are for the future use of that land. Maybe talk to some individuals within the economic development organization with your city or your county. And then you said this, you don't invest in Detroit, you invest in certain areas of Detroit and being very specific about those areas where you like the edge of hip. And we talked about how to look at that, both one, talk to local experts, and then two, look at the data. And then that's where the land use and just where the city is wanting to take it. Because it's tough to swim upstream against the government. But if you flow with the government and where the city is allocating funding, then, as you said, rising tides lift all boats. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. You know, I always say you can't fight the tide, but you can ride the waves. (laughs) I love that. Thanks, Joe. Have a great day. Adam Adams has one of the most active meetup groups in the world. I've personally been to one of his meetups, and Adam packed that house with over 80 investors at lunch and another 60 on the waiting list. Find out the exact six things he did to create one of the top meetups on the planet by texting the word meetup to 555-888.